This is Farah, and you're listening to the Be For Bacchus podcast, the podcast where we talk about wine stories from the Fertile Crescent. Welcome to season two of Be For Bacchus. So the production break for this new season didn't exactly go as planned. It's It's been a rough few months here in Beirut. In case you missed the news, the Lebanese capital was hit by the biggest non-nuclear explosion in modern history on August 4th, just two months ago. I was kind of thrown off balance for about six weeks, I'd say, honestly, working on the podcast and working on anything related to Beef Rebecca's has been something that's kind of keeping me sane right now. But for the first few weeks, I couldn't even look at it. It just, just felt It just felt trivial. It didn't matter. I couldn't focus on anything beyond what was in front of me. And what was in front of me was the rubble of my city. If you can, please donate to some of the organizations that are still working on the ground. Don't let the footage of our amazing volunteers fool you into thinking that we've got it covered and we don't need anything. We were drained before Beirut was blown up and all signs are showing us that things are just going to get even harder as we go into 2021. On that note, though, thanks to your Patreon subscriptions, for the last three months, we were able to help a few causes. I'd like to give a shout out to the new patrons, Tarek, Linda, Natalia, Nikki, Nathan, Joe, and Batul. And there are a few of you who didn't want a shout out, and I will respect that, but I'd still like to say I appreciate you, and you know who you are. We're kicking off this season by going way back in time. You may have seen a National Geographic article going around last month about a 2,600-year-old Phoenician wine press discovered in Sidon, Lebanon. If you haven't read it, don't worry. It'll be in the show notes. You can go check it out. But you'll know pretty much what it's talking about after listening to this episode. I received this article 17 times. Yes, I counted. But on the first read-through, before even getting to the end, I shot an email to Dr. Helen Sadr, a professor at the American University of Beirut and the archaeologist that's mentioned in the article. She is the co-director of the site where this wine press was found. But before we talk to Dr. Sadr, some background. The site we're going to talk about today is Tel El Burak, which means the Mound of the Pools. That's not its ancient name, but it gets the name from the springs and reservoirs in the area. It's about nine kilometers south of Saidan, or Saida, that's how we say it here, which is about a 40-minute drive south of Beirut. The excavation was a joint project between the AUB and Turbigen Erbehard Karl University of Turbigen and the German Archaeological Institute and the Johannes Gutenberg University as of 2013. Middle Bronze Age and Iron Age remains were uncovered there, and the discovery tells us that at this time, Saida may have been a well-established power with territory protected via these strongholds like Tel El Burak. Now, Dr. Sadr has a PhD in Assyriology and Northwestern Semitic Epigraphy, and we'll get into that in a bit. But first, why does Tel El Burak even matter? Well, this site, Tel Burak, is a post-war excavation, if you want, in Lebanon. And uh, it is a site that was chosen for a 
very specific purpose. The first purpose was to have long-term excavation to train our students in archaeology and fieldwork, and archaeological fieldwork, because this is a requirement for their graduation. And the second purpose was research. I am an archaeologist and an epigraphist, and I'm interested mainly in the Iron Age. And the site is located directly on the coast, on the beach, I would say, and it could bring us information about the site formation of a Phoenician site and information about this period that we know so little about from Lebanon, that is from the homeland of the Phoenicians. We know a lot about Phoenicians in the Mediterranean and their colonies, but we know little about, we knew actually little about the Phoenicians in their homeland. Sometimes what is ascribed to them is ascribed to Phoenicians living abroad, not Phoenicians living in the homeland. So what I wanted really to understand is how the people living here in their home country, what was you know their daily life? What were, were they producing? What were they doing? And so far we have very, very little information you know, about a Phoenician city or a Phoenician mm. settlement. Because the big cities where the attention has been you know, concentrating for many decades, the big sites of Byblos, Sidon and Tyre have yielded almost nothing regarding the Phoenicians. Phoenicia was not one big country. It's a name used to refer to a cluster of city-states along the coast of the Eastern Mediterranean, but they were all relatively independent of each other. Phoenician or Canaanite weren't even things that they called themselves. Those were names that were given to them by others. Residents of these port cities usually called themselves according to the trading centers that they were from. Like, I'm Farah from Tyre, or Byblos, or Arwad. The name Phoenician, the word, came from the Greeks, from the word phoenix, possibly signifying the color purplish-red, which may be connected to the purple dye that they were famous for. Purple dye they made from crushing murex shells. That, along with the timber from the cedar trees and the writing system that became the base for Western alphabets, are what they are most known for as a people. And of course, the spread of wine across the Mediterranean. It seems weird that we don't know more about Phoenicia or the people of these different city-states, considering that Lebanon is home to many of these major city-states. But as far as we know, the majority of them were destroyed because new civilizations would come and build right on top of the last one. We're still doing that till this day. When ancient sites are found, unfortunately, we either throw them away or just build right on top of them. Everyone thought that they would find great things in these main capitals of the Phoenician kingdoms, which turned out not to be correct because these cities will have been inhabited constantly and the Phoenician remains are hidden very deep under mm. more modern uh, housing and so on and so forth. And some of them were uh, major Roman cities and the Romans usually bulldozed everything before building their own town. Yeah, very efficient. So, uh, yeah, uh, so this is this is why it was important. And the Lebanese coast was never surveyed. Yani, we don't know how many Phoenician sites we have. No work has been done. So it was, it was uh, an opportunity because this site, thank God, had been expropriated by the Department of Antiquities before the war, yeah, in 1964. Mm -hmm. So it was 
available for excavations without doing all the you know negotiations with the landowners and so on and so forth so we picked it up and we started you know surveying the site and its uh, you know neighborhood in 1997 it is only in 2001 that we received the permission to start a long term excavation there and we have been excavating almost every year you know with interruptions due to whatever happened in the country and yeah. so no basically it is an ongoing excavation and it is only recently that in 2005 actually we hit part of the vat of the wine mm. press but we were busy exposing the middle bronze age palace because you have a middle bronze age palace with wall paintings in one of the rooms so it was a very important discovery also unique you know to Lebanon we have no other no other palace let's say or big official building from the middle bronze age in the country not even in Byblos not in Sidon nowhere so it was very important and the wall paintings were very old very unique and with lots of egyptian rather than minoan influence so although this article went viral it's not new news this archaeological project has been ongoing since 2001 but the wine press itself wasn't uncovered until a few years ago. The reason for it taking so long is that the team got a little sidetracked by a Middle Bronze Age palace of 19 rooms built at different levels like terraces. It may have been a fortress because it has corner towers and these rooms have a bunch of other elements that kept the team busy like bread ovens or tanours, cobbled floors, and one room has some of the best preserved wall paintings of the Middle Bronze Age in Levant and they show Egyptian influence. Light and dark reds, blue, brown and black on white lime plaster, motifs of trees, leaves, some running dogs and a standing goat. The styles are paralleled in wall paintings found in Egypt and Syria, which makes sense because the Middle Bronze Age was the peak period for trade between Egypt and Phoenicia. During this time, Saida may have been a key player in transmitting Egyptian culture to inner Syria, through the Jazin Pass, to the Bekaa Valley, and on to Damascus. We put all our efforts there and we forgot about mm. the site where we had only one uh, segment of the vat in 2011 when we we were almost done with the uh, palace we started excavating the slope the southern slope where we had uh, some phoenician buildings already iron age buildings so when we started expanding on the southern slope we came to the area Uh, of the wine press and we started uh, excavating there and this is how we discovered it yani we exposed it over three years yani 2016 uh, 17 18 until we exposed it entirely in 2018 so you said the department of antiquities had already had this plot under yeah. their uh, yeah Claim. This was, you know, at the time when the Emir Maurice was uh, director general, okay. because he started a survey that he never completed. Oh, okay. He started a survey of the coast, you know, of the southern coast. So he identified a couple of sites, uh, and only uh, Tel Burak was expropriated. I wonder why. There was, mm. you know, the ancient site of Adlun, which is called Mina Mina Tras Abu Zaid. He identified Sarepta. He identified mm. several of these sites, but they were never he protected. Only, only this one. 
was expropriated. So this was a great opportunity to take. You know, it was not en entirely intact because during the war, you know, mm. there were some, uh, you know, digging, illegal digging there. But basically, it was more or less well protected. I mean, well, well preserved, let's say. Sarapta, a Phoenician town next to modern-day Sarafand, was known for its pottery. It was excavated by James B. Pritchard in the early 70s, right before the Civil War broke out. Sarafand, which is near Tyre, is now famous for the last glass-blowing artisans of Lebanon. Adlun Beach is another chunk of Lebanese coastline that is being fought over for private luxury development. This is a very common thing here. Habib Batah for the Beirut Report has a lot of documentation on this. When Dr. Sadr says the Emir Maurice, she's talking about Emir Maurice Shahab. He was the director general of antiquities and known as the father of modern Lebanese archaeology. He was also the director of the National Museum of Beirut for like 40 years, but he was also involved in the beginnings of it as its first unofficial curator. In 1937, he launched the Museum Bulletin and continued to produce 36 volumes of it. Today's version is called Baal. It was started in 1996. Baal stands for the Bulletin of Lebanese Archaeology and Architecture, but, you know, in French. But Baal is also an important Canaanite god. Emir Moriz is most famous for his excavation of Tyre, the coastal Phoenician city we mentioned earlier, where he worked for 30 years with his wife, Olga Shaiban. A Daily Star newspaper article written in 1997 quotes Olga saying, I'm sure that if he had to choose between work and me, he would have chosen his work. That is why I decided to work with him. Olga and Emir Maurice were behind the extreme decision to hide the museum's artifacts during the Civil War. So the intersection where the museum is, it's known as Matthaf until today. Matthaf means museum. But this area was also the historic crossing between East and West Beirut, which represents the two opposing sides of the Civil War. The museum got really heavily beaten up during this time. It was occupied by fighting factions, the Syrian army, the Israelis, throughout the 15-year conflict. So Olga and Emir Maurice, they wanted to figure out how can we protect these treasures inside. First, they used sandbags and wood, but soldiers would end up using the wood to build fires. So they had to get crafty. While most people thought that the artifacts were stolen or sent abroad, in reality, they sat there inside the museum's basement, behind, or in the case of mosaics, underneath double layers of concrete. Why do you think it's so difficult? Like, why is it so difficult to survey and have these? It's not difficult. It's a lack of interest. It's negligence because the first thing you have to do in a country, you know, if you are an archaeologist, is to survey the area in order to spot the, the sites, the archaeological settlements, and only when you know where they are, you can protect them. You cannot protect them if somebody comes with a bulldozer and starts building. And it's too late usually, yeah. you know, and when you are taken by surprise and under pressure, yeah. once you know where all these sites are, Every time, you know, a project or an operation has to be done like building, like infrastructure, like agriculture, then you can tell the people here, or you can excavate, see what, uh, how important it is, and then uh, give, it, uh, give it away. But this has not happened in Lebanon. 
unfortunately, because they were obnubilated by the big sites, you know, big names. Said Dasur, Jbeil, these were the big names and they uh, focused on these sites because, you know, tourism was very important. So they focused on these sites with the hope that they would bring very important information about the Phoenicians. But then they found magnificent uh, Roman cities, <laughs> Byzantine mm. cities, but hardly anything on the Phoenicians. Were you expecting, as an archaeologist, to discover something like this there? We were hoping for even more than that. In fact, this is not a settlement where people lived. This is like a place where people worked, where an industrial compound, if you want, where people were processing grapes, were processing olive oil, were producing uh, final products from agricultural produce. And this is what is interesting about the site and what is important. We know now that one, we knew it already, but we did not have the evidence for right. it. So we, we knew that the Phoenicians were famous for their wine. We knew that they exported this wine in these very typical Phoenician amphorae. And we knew from the shipwrecks that were found off the shore of Ashkelon, you know, the so-called Tanit and Elisa shipwrecks, they contained only amphorae mm -hmm. and these amphorae contained wine from the analysis, we know that. Yeah. And the amphorae came, you know, the clay was analyzed and it came from the area of Saida. So, Everything converged. Now now we have the evidence for the wine press. We know where the wine mm. was produced and we know how it was produced. Right. We, we were able to study the building technique and the architecture of these wine presses. This is a huge wine press compared to the other ones simi with similar concepts, if you want, were found in, uh, you know, on the shore of uh, mm. Palestine. And these uh, cities were, most of them, part of the Phoenician kingdoms. Uh, but they are very small in size. This one is huge and its industrial scale is obvious. From the size of this treading basin where the grapes were treaded, uh, and the size of the vat that contained thousands of liters of wine. So there was finally proof that it was yeah. also produced here. It not was just produced exported. here, and you know where it was produced. How? Yeah, it's one example. Maybe mm. there were others. Yeah. But this is one very important and very telling example. At Tel El Borak, there was an archaeobotanical assemblage of Vitis vinifera seeds, the standard European wine grape species. And there was also a collection of ridgeneck amphora of Lebanese origin, which again shows just how much trade was happening along the coast from here to Palestine to Egypt. Finding amphora and drinking sets littered across the Mediterranean has been a way of tracing the production and consumption of wine in the region during the Iron Age or the first millennium BC. The spread of wine across the sea is attributed to the Phoenician traders who founded settlements across the western and central Mediterranean, and they are credited for introducing the grapevine to Europe and North Africa. However, when it comes to evidence of winemaking within Phoenicia, there wasn't much until now. Wine presses had three main parts. A treading basin where people would go and stomp on the grapes, you know, with their feet a connecting channel where the juice would flow, and a sunken vat where the must would collect and possibly ferment. The wine press of Tel El Borak was built in early 7th century BC and has a capacity of over 5,000 liters. 
because of its size and preservation, it is one of the finest examples of a wine press in the ancient Mediterranean. The Elisa and Tanit shipwrecks that Dr. Sadr mentions very quickly, those were discovered by archaeologist Lawrence Steger and oceanographer Robert Ballard. They were two ships that sunk off the coast of Palestine in 750 BC. They were carrying wine cargo heading to Carthage, maybe Egypt. To find the ships, they used the same technology that they used to discover another famous ship you might know. It's called the Titanic. There have been a lot of shipwrecks discovered across the Mediterranean, but this was one of the oldest indications of wine from Phoenicia. I'll go into shipwrecks more in this month's extra Patreon podcast episode. If you want access to it, make sure you're a gold subscriber at $10 a month. You mentioned uh, sites in Palestine that are similar. Yeah, there's a lot. We have, first of all, you know, in the area of Haifa and south of the Carmel, we have several sites where they found this kind of wine press, wine mm. presses, but at a smaller scale, mm. Ashkelon, which is further south and which, according to Pseudox Eskilax, was belonged to Tyre at that okay. time. So the Phoenician influence on the coast of Palestine is obvious, mm-hmm. you know, what is not Philistine is Phoenician. Pseudoskilax is an ancient Greek periplus of the Mediterranean and the Black Sea. What's a periplus, right? A periplus is like a map in the form of an Excel sheet. So it's a manuscript with the list of all the stops along a shore and the distances between them. Does working with, you know, archaeologists in Palestine ever get difficult because of the no, political no, no. situation? I mean, we, you know, we are we rely on the publications. Mm-hmm. All the, all these people are scholars mm-hmm. who are excavating like us and yeah. publishing in venues that are available to all scholars in the field. So you don't necessarily have to have, have a discussion. You know, right. As long as it is published, then it's fine. Now, when you go to international conferences, you can you listen also <laughs> to what they have to say. No, yeah. it's uh, it's this is how uh, you know uh, academia goes. I mean, you cannot live in <laughs> hidden, right. and you cannot hide what you have, and you cannot just close your eyes of what is uh, being done elsewhere because you are uh, especially because of modern borders versus uh, ancient yeah, ones. But, and and the and the fact is, you know, that Phoenicia is not only restricted to Lebanon; it starts in Syria and North Syria and ends in Palestine. So this coast, all of it, you mm-hmm. know, what we call the Levantine coast that the Greeks called Phoenicia, did, was not restricted to Lebanon. It was all over the place, but the three main capitals of the Phoenician kingdoms were, you know, on Liban- are now on Lebanese territory, mm-hmm. namely Biblos, Sidon, and Tyre. Amrit is in Syria, and these are the four Phoenician uh, kingdoms that are attested in the sources. And so the reconstruction of downtown Beirut took place after the Civil War, so during the 90s. Archaeologists had to focus all of their energy there before it was handed over to the developers. And no new excavation permits were issued until the rescue excavations of the central district were done. This is why Tal al site wasn't touched until just before the new millennium. What does it feel like after, you know, working on something for that long of a period to suddenly feel like you've, you know, you've hit gold and... <laughs> It's, it's, you've you found know, something. We we had this uh, this feeling when we found the the press because we can evaluate the importance of this discovery. But of course, 
we didn't go to the media to announce it. Mm -hmm. But still, we were very excited, you know, with this discovery. And most probably also, you know, from the geophysical survey that we did, we may have a second one. Mm -hmm. This would really consecrate the site of Telburak as a major production center of wine. And you, you mentioned wine and olive oil. Um, yes. And I had read in one of the papers that, you know, there was always, it's difficult to differentiate between the it's presses. It's not difficult, you know, the, today we have organic residue analysis that can identify the mm -hmm. content. This is how they identify the content of these amphorae that were found in the shipwrecks. But uh, in, in, at Tel Burak, we found a storage room with broken amphorae, you know, because mm -hmm. the house collapsed for some reason. And the analysis only of one, you know, we did not analyze all of them, but the analysis of one of the shirts, you know, uh, gave you know, evidence for wine, but the others gave evidence of fat. They identified it probably as a vegetal fat but by opposition to animal fat. And it is most probably olive oil, but we haven't found the olive press. But we know that olive oil was produced somewhere in the area and stored also at Tel Burak. Maybe somewhere, maybe the press that they have seen could be an olive press, the second and one, the second one right. or another wine press. We don't know. But certainly, you know, from the, the houses or the buildings that you have exposed do not indicate a domestic building that is a place, a house where people okay. were living. All the installations there seem to have been used for an industrial purpose, for the processing of uh, agricultural produce. So. Okay. And mainly grapes. So this is one of the first signs that Saida actually had a Middle Bronze Age, because there are signs of... No, what? in Saida itself, in the site excavated by the British Museum, they found a huge cemetery of the Middle Bronze Age. Okay. They did not find the settlement, but they found the cemetery, which, is a, which indicates that Sidon was very rich, very wealthy, very, you know, had a, an excellent trade network in the Mediterranean in the Middle Bronze Age. But the point is that they did not discover the settlement. I mean, okay. We don't know where the people lived. Right, so you knew it was there. You just it is there. And Burak, sure Burak provided a, a, a palace. It is not also a settlement. It's only the palace. Mm. You know, there are no other houses okay. in the area. It seems it was either a summer resort for the kings of Saida mm -hmm. or a funerary palace for the kings of Saida. Okay. We don't know. I mean, all these are speculations. Right. But certainly those who built it are the kings of Saida because Burak is an artificial site mm -hmm. at that time, used only to build this palace. Okay. There seems to be significance in the journals and stuff that I read uh, about lime plaster. The, the whole issue now, this whole story came from this article that was published in the journal Antiquity. Uh, three colleagues from Tübingen who, has, who specialize, you know, in these analyses have analyzed the plaster of the uh, threading basin because all of it is covered with plaster. Mm -hmm. So they took samples from this plaster, they analyzed it, and they found that the plaster was composed also not only of lime, but with crushed pottery, crushed ceramics. And this composition made it uh, waterproof and very strong. This is basically what they found out. And this is a method that the later Romans used in their buildings for water. Mm -hmm. So this was the article in antiquity. I mean, this was the gist of the article in antiquity. It's the result of the scientific analysis. But of course, to put it in 
in its uh, historical and archaeological context, they had to, to make a short introduction of, at Tel Burak and to speak about the wine press because it is from there that they took their samples. And Antiquity was very pleased with the article and decided to make a press release. They usually, oh, okay. they don't uh, make it unless, you know, it's something that they want to attract attention mm. to. So they made a press release. The University of Tübingen knew about the press release because these scientists are working in Tübingen. The University of Tübingen also made the press release, but this is not what brought this to the media. What brought this to the media is a freelance journalist called Thomas Metcalf, mm -hmm. who asked for further additional uh, evidence. He spoke with me. I yeah. sent him the information he wanted, and he put it in National Geographic. And this is what, you know, made the buzz, buzz and yeah. the scoop, because National Geographic, it was online the minute the ban was lifted by, from, by antiquity. So the minute the ban was lifted, he published and it. it was in and this is what brought it everywhere. Yeah. Not the article in antiquity mm. and not the press release. Of yeah, it. I mean, I, I read it on National Geographic and I received Everybody. it from so many people. Everybody read it on National Geographic. Nobody has read it, you know. Yeah, and then when antiquity. I I went looking, I was like, this isn't new news. This has been, you know, under excavation yes. for decades now. Yeah, that's true. But the, uh, the exposure of the... Uh, of the wine press is the most recent part of the excavations. Mm. It was not found at the beginning of the excavation. The article in the Antiquity Journal wasn't even about the wine press. It was about the lime plaster used in the construction of the wine press, which used grog, G-R-O-G, which is crushed ceramics and shells. According to the article, the plaster shows that it was a, quote, highly specialized center for the production, processing, and storage of agricultural commodities. Wine was so important to society and trade that they were invested in making good structures to produce it. But this article also tells us that digging up Tal al-Burak is not new news. Fine. But for a country like Lebanon that is so littered with historical sites, why don't we hear about archaeological discoveries more often? I mean, you, you read in the newspapers regularly what was discovered in Saida, for example. Mm -hmm. That is regularly, you know, informed. But the, they, are, they can afford to do this because the site that is being excavated is within the premises of the Department of Antiquities. Mm -hmm. And it, it has a gate, it is locked, and there are, uh, you know, soldiers watching it. So you can announce something because nobody would ever, you know, uh, it's not at ever, risk. No. Yeah. Other places, you know, have to keep quiet because I personally, nobody told me to do this, but I personally am aware that, you know, if you speak of anything, of a Phoenician house, I mean, people, I don't know what people have in mind. They think that there, are, there is gold hidden everywhere. <laughs> I mean, this is stupid, but this is how people think. So I don't want them to come and destroy the house for the stupidity, because if there were gold, I would have found that before. They come <laughs> but uh, this is this is how what uh, yeah, happens. Yeah, they want to come look. Yeah, in. they want they want to come, and, and then go. it might compromise the site or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. This is the reason. Yeah. You have a PhD in Assyriology and Northwestern Semitic epigraphy. Ancient how, Semitic languages. Yeah, how did you end up there? Well, I was interested in ancient languages, and when I uh, I got a scholarship for Germany, 
And I went to Tübingen because there was one of the most famous professors for Semitic uh, languages, mainly Phoenician. Mm. He's the author of the Phoenician grammar and he's the author of several, you know. But when you study the, the languages, you study also the history, you right. study also the archaeology, where these texts were found. And this is how, when I came back to Lebanon, you know, the public for ancient languages is not very big among <laughs> the students. So you had to, to teach, you know, courses uh, that are related and not like, for example, I teach courses on ancient Mesopotamia. This mm -hmm. is because I studied all the cuneiform, you know, text and so on. So I started teaching the archaeology of Mesopotamia, the archaeology of Lebanon, the archaeology of Syria, because my PhD is on the Arameans, Syria. And I developed courses that, uh, that were around, you know, uh, my epigraphic mm -hmm. uh, interest. And this is how it goes. Now people are more interested in archaeology mm. than in uh, ancient languages. Because ancient languages are very difficult. You have to dedicate all your time and all your efforts, you know. And it's purely research, and you need, I guess, at this And point. you need to have a text, new texts available to, mm. to study them. Right. <laughs> Lebanon has no cuneiform has you know Phoenicians uh, they uh, never wrote anything so or whatever they wrote uh, you know did not come down to us so this is it's once again the Germans they they tend to always be associated with a lot of our sites or historical like... because the Germans are interested in Near Eastern archaeology and in biblical archaeology you know the interest of the first uh, Germans who came to Lebanon was you know Near Eastern archaeology and also it's uh, how it relates, if you want, to biblical sites. Mm. Huh? So it is a little bit connected uh, for them in their mind. And they are great Semitists, have always been, you know, uh, very good in Arabic language mm. and uh, all other Semitic languages, Aramaic, Phoenician and so on. So this is why, and they are interested and they can be funded. This is also a key. Oh, yeah. Issue. Money. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. Um, and right now, the project's been kind of like on hold. Now, because of Corona, right. we were on hold and uh, we are on hold. We hope to resume next year because we need to understand more, mm -hmm. uh, you know, some structures on site and we want to publish because what is very important is to publish, you know, mm -hmm. to make a final publication. Probably after one or two excavation seasons we will stop to publish and then you know once the book is out this is this is the book you know this is the final publication of the middle of yeah I, I saw that on amazon and, for about 120 dollars yes, yes. <laughs> so this is uh, this is the ultimate aim is this okay. you know we want to make the volume of the iron age yeah this yeah. will be two or three volumes you mm. know it we have more material than this how do you know when you reach that phase? Like when, okay, we're you done. You see, you can never excavate a site completely. Yeah. Uh, this is out of the question. The minute you have a good stratigraphy of the site, yeah, then you can date your buildings, mm -hmm. you can study their plans, you can take all the, all the pottery mainly, you know, mm -hmm. that gives you, you know, a relative dating of uh, the sequences. So it's enough. We have millions of shirts. If you don't publish them, nobody will ever be able to publish them. So I don't want to leave things without final publications because those who have not worked on site will not 
will never be as able to, in spite of the fact that the documentation is very good, but it's different, you know, when yeah, you were there, you when you off. have seen these things, it's much better right. to have the people who work that, Saw you know, contributing, contributing to the publication. Mm. And this is what we did with the first one. What happens to all the specimens? They go to the Department of Antiquities. Everything is the property of the Department of Antiquities. Nothing is ours. Now, right. we study this material, we publish this material, but the ownership is always for the Lebanese state. And would they ever consider turning it into a site to visit? <laughs> well, in principle, it should, because this is already expropriated. But in mm. order to turn it into a site that can be visited, it needs a lot of work and it needs a lot of money. Because first of all, you have to fence it. Second, you have to explain it. Third, you have to uh, restore the buildings and uh, build something Fortify. to protect them. It's not easy because now I cover up everything. You go there, you don't see anything. Because you cannot leave them in the open. We make an effort to hide everything or to cover everything for their protection. But if we want to expose them to allow the public to come and visit, we have to restore them, to mm. consolidate them, to build some sort of roof on top of them, to preserve them. But this entails, you know, money, at least $100,000 to do all this, you know, to yeah. make the panels, to make the fence, to bring restoration specialists to restore the walls, because you will have to go and collect the stones that are fallen. Mm -hmm. It's work. So we hope we can do this at the end, because the site is very important. And if you uncover the, you know, the wine press, you need really to protect it. Do archaeological sites and historical places of significance take a second seat when it comes to what the country is facing now? Like, no, certainly. Not a second, it's... a third, tenth, fifteenth, <laughs> you know, it's the bottom of yeah. the list. It's always the bottom of the list. And that's why things are so slow? Because, you know, health is a priority, money is a priority, finances are a priority, people want to live, education is a priority. Really, whether the, a site is looted or not is, is not going to change much to the living of the people. It has always been at the bottom of the priority list of any government and of the Lebanese government, because here also we lack, you know, real awareness about the importance of heritage. They make a lot of fuss in the news. No. In fact, in reality, nothing is being done. So this is... Uh, this is unfortunate, but this is something that international institutions uh, are interested in preserving these things, but, but it's not always easy to do it. First of all, it, it is a lot of money, and second, they always come after the damage has been done in countries at war. You never prevent the damage. Mm -hmm. The damage occurs, and then you have to do something to repair it or to replace it or to whatever. Mm? So it's always a counter action. No, it's, it's never a preventive action. Very few countries can prevent damage when you have a war. How to prevent damage? Mm. You know? And we have seen in Syria, in Iraq, in Lebanon. So in Syria and Iraq, the damage is even worse than what happened here. It's negligence, it's urbanization, life of the people, I would say. And it's in the mentality of it. Do you feel like anything's changing on that front? 
very little, very little. I mean, you have an elite that gives some importance to these things, but they forget about it the next day. It's very difficult to move now, under these circumstances, to move people to, uh, how shall I say, to commit them to, to this. Mm -hmm. Environment is not even, you know, yeah. uh, strong enough to, it is their own life, their health that is at stake, but they don't care. I think the accumulation of, of problems that this country has gone through, the people don't care anymore. They want to survive, that's it. Yeah, I think the, we're spent in a way. I mean, I listen to my students also. They, we are used to death. We are used to this. <laughs> they are disenchanted, which yeah. is also... And when you are disenchanted, you lose uh, interest in the importance of things. Nothing is important. Maybe anymore. there's even, to an extent, there might be a bit of resentment to the past yeah, and yeah, exactly. everything that led here, even if it's not the same thing. Anyway, it's uh, unfortunate, but this is how it is. Are there any other signs of similar wine presses like Tal al Burak? Similar, but, in but Lebanon, smaller. Maybe, not in, in Lebanon, not. Not one. Or not yet? or Not, not Maybe not yet. <laughs> For the time being, that it is the, the only the example that we have from this period. Don't forget that mm. we are 8th, 7th centuries BC. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's a lot to work with here. Mm. You know, only archaeology can give us the right answers and stop speculations mm. and stop myths from developing. You know, we need to have facts and only archaeology can give us bare facts. So the Lebanese have been for years obnubilated by mythical stories about the Phoenicians, about what they did, mm -hmm. about what, all these are, most of it come from Greek myths. So one has to develop archaeological work in order to come to the reality or the truth on, these, on this period of Lebanese history, devoid from wrong beliefs, devoid from cliches, devoid from all sorts of whatever you want to call <laughs> Archaeology and the history that comes with it will give us the truth of where we've been and maybe even tell us why we're still where we are. Thanks for listening. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe to our Patreon so you can get even more cool wine stories from the region. This is Farah signing off for the Be For Backus podcast.